You're listening to a podcast from 702. The Literature Corner. And today we're going to read. It is the reading corner. You can read poetry. You can perform it. I look forward to uh, your reading and some of your creativity. Uh, don't hunt on forever and a day because we do want everyone to have a chance. So let's say, I don't know, about two minutes or so, roughly speaking. You can leave me a voice note of you reading. You can be reading a beautiful piece of prose that you unexpectedly found in a newspaper, perhaps, or on an online magazine, or maybe you still subscribe to physical copies, or it could be the latest book that you have read or you are reading currently and you went, OMG, I have to actually just put the book down and look cheesily into the oblivion appreciating the aesthetics of what I've just read. Well, share it with us. 011-883-0702. Alternatively, you can send me a voice note of you reading. And the number where you can do so is 072-702-1702. As you know, I randomly, um, and sometimes not so randomly, take books from my library for the reading corner so I can read to you as well. And Laura does the same. We both love um, books. Laura, what have you got today? Uh, so I have, it's called Lost Children Archive okay. by Valeria Luiselli. That sounds very high grade. So, <laughs> not really. <laughs> so I'm not sure if, you, um, if you're familiar with, there was a bit of drama controversy around the book American Dirt. Mm. I'm not sure if you heard about it. Mm. Yeah. So it was on Oprah's reading I've been list. meaning to read it first before we have a debate about it. Yeah. So we will have the debate about it. But the reason I'm raising it is because the book that I picked up, it was actually, um, I read a review in the Mail and Guardian two weeks ago. Um, and I straight away read the review and said, no, no, I must order the book. So it arrived quite quickly, actually, from the, from the States about four days ago. Um, and basically what this book is, is it's what American Dirt, I think, was trying to be. So just a, a bit of background. American Dirt was written by a white American writer about the plight of um, Mexican immigrants who are trying to cross into the U.S. And the controversy, which we can debate for another day, is did she have the right to write about that? Mm. Because apparently some of the images, the way that the Mexican immigrants were depicted, were quite harmful. And a lot of academics, a lot of um, native um, Mexican people who now live in the U.S. said, well, it was stereotypical. How can she be writing about that? So what, um, she was accused of Mexican face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cultural appropriation et al. So um, what Valeria um, Luiselli does, so she herself was born in Mexico. She um, came, okay. came to the U.S., applied for a green card, got the green card. And the story is about basically two sets of um, families. Um, her family who embark on this road trip, her and her husband and her two, and the two kids, um, they're going to Texas. And then on the other hand, you've got, um, the grannies and the aunties who are packing up their kids on the Mexican side, hmm. packing their backpacks and sending them with the coyotes, as they call them, for a better life in the US. Hmm. So the story is how these two merge almost, these two stories. That sounds fabulous. Yeah. So I'm, I'm quite, um, I'm quite, uh, I only started it last night, but I was just fascinated by the passage I'm going to read because for the first time you kind of get the intention of what the stories are about. Mm. Um, so yeah, the chapter is called Tongue Ties. When the girl was four and had started going to public school, she prematurely lost a tooth. Immediately after, she started stuttering. We never knew if the events were in fact causally related, school, tooth, stutter. But in our familial narrative, at least, the three things got tied together in a confusing, emotionally charged knot. 
One morning during our last winter in New York, I had a conversation with the mother of one of my daughter's classmates. We were in the auditorium waiting to vote for new parent representatives. The two of us stood in line for a while, exchanging stories about our children's linguistic and cultural stalemates. My daughter had started for a year, I told her, sometimes to the point of non-communication. She'd begin every sentence like she was about to sneeze. But she had recently discovered that if she sang a sentence instead of speaking it, it would come out without a stutter. And so slowly she had been growing out of her stutter. Her son, she told me, had not said a word in almost six months, not in any language. We asked each other about the places we were from and the languages that we spoke at home. They were from Talahiko in the Mexica, she told me. Her first language was Trik. I'd never heard of Trik, and the only thing I knew about it was that it was one of the most complex tonal languages with more than eight tones. When I asked her if her son could speak Trik, she told me, no, of course not. And she said, our mothers teach us to speak, and the world teaches us to shut up. After we voted, right before saying goodbye, we introduced ourselves, though it should have been the other way around. Her name was Manuela, the same as my grandmother's name. She found the coincidence less amusing than I did. I told her if she might be willing to let me record her one day and told her about the sounds documentary my husband and I were almost finished working on. We had not yet sampled Treek. It was a rare language to come by. She agreed hesitatingly, and then we met in the park in the next couple of days at the school. She'd asked me for one thing in exchange for this. She had two older daughters, eight and ten, who had just arrived in the country crossing the border on foot and were held in a detention center in Texas. She needed someone to translate their documents from Spanish into English at little or no cost so she could find a lawyer to defend them from being deported. Hmm. I agreed without knowing what I was getting myself into. <laughs> yeah, there's so much there. Absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Hmm. Yeah, really, really interesting. And something I didn't mention, which is quite integral to the to the story, is that her and her husband are they're, um, they're filmmakers, but they record sounds and audio. So a big project they were working on was they would go and record just people talking and they speak a lot about the languages and, mm. and lost languages. And that's why she was, she herself being Mexican was used to translate these documents. Mm. And the story continues about how she gets involved in these children who are sitting at the border in these detention centers waiting to be deported unless the parents who are in the U.S. can, can get them out. Madness. So. <laughs> yeah. 13 minutes after 11. The Literature Corner. Okay, you can also read, like Laura, give me a call right now. It can be poetry, lyrics, an essay, work of non-fiction or fiction. What do you currently have in your hands, as she does? And read us a passage or perform a poem, even. That's perfectly acceptable to 011-883-0702. We've got a recording from one of you reading, and um, it is Mike. You're going to enjoy this uh, passage. The Famous Road by Ben Okri. In the beginning, there was a river. The river became a road, and the road branched out to the whole world. And because the road was once a river, it was always hungry. In that land of beginnings, spirits mingled with the unborn. We could assume numerous forms. Many of us were birds. We knew no boundaries. There was much feasting, playing, and sorrowing. We feasted much because of the beautiful terrors of eternity. We played much because we were free. And we borrowed much because there were always those amongst us who had just returned from the land of the living. 
they had returned inconsolable for all the love they had left behind, all the suffering they hadn't redeemed, all that they hadn't understood, and for all that they had barely begun to learn before they were drawn back to the land of origins. They were not one amongst us who looked forward to being born. We disliked the rigorous of existence, the unfulfilled longings, the untried injustices of the world, the labyrinths of love, the ignorance of parents, the fact of dying, and the amazing indifference of the living in the midst of simple beauties of the universe. We feared the heartlessness of human beings, all of whom are born blind, few of whom ever learn to see. Our king was a wonderful personage who sometimes appeared in the form of a great cat. He had a red beard and eyes of greenish sapphire. He had been born unaccountable times and was a legend in all worlds known by a hundred different names. Stunning. I can, <laughs> I can listen to Mike the whole day. Mike, thanks so much for that. Absolutely amazing. O double one double eight three oh seven oh two. You can also read on WhatsApp, send us a voice note, reading or performing a passage from whatever. It can be poetry, lyrics, fiction, nonfiction, an essay. The phone book for that matter. I just love the idea of us being a country of folk who read for ourselves and for one another. O seven two. 702-1702. That's the WhatsApp number. So I'll be reading from a book called A Spark of Light by author Jody Pico. It is a book that aims to address the issue around the banning of maternal abortions, specifically in the United States. Well, given that I am a medical student at the University of Pretoria, this was a piece when I was reading this book that really, really touched me and drew a very weird connection between what we are supposed to believe scientifically and our core beliefs in terms of religion. And the piece reads as thus. Today, he was reading the research of a team from Northwest University, who had recorded a zinc flash at the precise instant a sperm fertilized an egg. A rush of calcium at the moment caused the zinc to be released from the egg. As the zinc burst out, it attached itself to small fluorescent molecules, the spark that was picked up by camera microscopes. Although this had been seen before in mice, it was the first time it was seen in humans. Most important, Certain eggs glowed a little brighter in than others at the moment of conception. The same ones that went on to become healthy embryos. Given that 50% of eggs fertilized in vitro weren't viable, and that often came down to clinicians guessing which one looked healthiest, the implication of the study were significant. The correct embryo to transfer was the one that had burnt the brightest at the moment of fertilization. Then God said, let there be light, Louis murmured to himself. He shook his head in wonder, in wonder. Those infinitesimal bits of zinc determined whether an egg would become completely new genetic entity or not. Science never failed to humble him. 
just as much as his faith, and he unequivocally believed that the two could exist side by side. And that's the piece. Okay, thanks so much for reading there. Um, although I don't know how many people listen to you because some were still <laughs> enamored by Mike's voice. doesn't matter what voice you have. I just want you to read. I loved the fact that he was reading that passage, a really important one as well. So anyone is most welcome. Uh, you can WhatsApp us on 072-702-1702. Literature Corner. <clears throat> okay, so one book I have in front of me is Anki Kroch, Country of My Skull which won, of course, the Alan Payton Award. A really, really, really important book this as well. I'm just going to randomly read for you from the beginning of this particular book. <clears throat> so it's chapter one. They never wept, the men of my race. Sunk low on their springs, three weathered white Sierras roar past the wrought iron gates of Parliament. Heavy, ham-like forearms bulge through the open windows, honking, waving old Free State and Transvaal flags, hairy fists in the air. I run across the cobblestone street, clutching notepad and recorder to the old parliamentary venue where the Justice Portfolio Committee is hearing public submissions on what to include in the draft legislation establishing a truth commission. The faces are grim in the hall with its dark panelling, old-fashioned microphones hanging from the ceiling, hard wooden gallery and green leather seats. Bellington Mape, Luxmart Ngudle, Suleiman Saluji, Solomon Moripane, James Lanque, a slow litany of names, read out in the quiet hall, the names of 120 people who died in police custody. Imam Abdullah Harun, Elfius Maliba, Ahmed Timo, Steve Bantu Biko, Neil Agate, Nicodemus Khoatu. The chairperson of the Black Sash, Mary Burton, concludes her submission in the same way the Sash's meetings have been concluded for years. Name upon name upon name. They fall like chimes into the silence. Journalists stop taking notes. Committee members put down their pens. Stunned by this magnitude of death, that is but a bare beginning. The poetry of Anki Kroch is absolutely incredible. The way she writes into our incredibly, incredibly violent past. And did it again recently with her piece on F.W. de Klerk, which if you hadn't read it, you really, 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 really should. Khatli, so good morning. Hi, how are you? Are you serious? I'm good, thank you. Yes. So I want to read something that I saw on, on, on Twitter. It was a, I, I'm not sure whether it's from a book or what. Okay. I saw it a while back and I saved it. Oh, fantastic. Share it with us. Yeah. So it says, uh, my teacher asked us, is love a feeling or is it a choice? We were all a bunch of teenagers. Naturally, we said it was a feeling. She said that if we clung to that belief, we'd never have a lasting relationship of any sort. She made us interview a dozen adults who were or had been married, and we asked them about their marriages and why it lasted or why it failed. At the end, I asked every single person if love was an emotion or a choice. Everybody said it was a choice. It was a conscious commitment. It was something you chose to make work every day with the person who has chosen the same thing. 
They all said that at one point in their marriage, the feeling of love had vanished or faded, and they weren't happy. They said feelings are always changing, and you cannot build something that will last on such a shaky foundation. (laughs) The married one said that when things were bad, they chose to open the communication, chose to identify what broke and how to fix it, and chose to recreate something worth falling in love with. The divorced one said they chose to walk away. Ever since that class, since that project, I never looked at relationships the same way. I understood why arranged marriages were successful. I discovered the difference in feelings and commitment. <laughs> I've never gone for the person who makes my heart flutter or my head beat. I've chosen the people who were committed to choosing me, dedicated to finding something to adore, even on the ugliest days. I no longer fear the day someone who saw I was their universe can no longer see the stars in my eyes as long as they still choose to look until they find them again. Yes. Oh, my God. I love that. You meant you got from useless Twitter, you managed to get something that interesting. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I still love it. I even downloaded it. I saved it on my phone. I absolutely love it. So, of course, you know, you know, I'm going to ask you this question. Uh-huh. Who are you choosing to love that you no longer have feelings for? No, 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 no. I'm, oh. I'm love the person who's choosing to love me every day. <laughs> <laughs> Even on the ugliest days, he's still choosing to love me. <laughs> so I'm doing the same. <laughs> I've also learned that the love is not an emotion, it's a choice. Yeah, you, you're upsetting those of us who are romantics. We want to have everything. We want to have. Know, hey? We want to be loved, despite the fact that we don't look the way we did ten years ago when we did the honeymoon. Yeah, but they must just look until they find what they saw ten years ago. <laughs> we, as we grow, obviously, you will change. So that is why it says that you can't do something that will last on such a shaky foundation. That's true, because some yes. things, some things like having a six pack, they are transient. <laughs> Thank you, Katlijo. That was delicious. Why didn't you just put some of the words in Google and see where an author comes up? I I should, eh? I should. If you do, tag me on Twitter. I'd love to just retweet that. A lot of people will be intrigued. Not sure I agree with everything, but I think it's so thoughtful. It's really, really interesting. There's a whole discussion to be had there. We'll come back to it. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah. So tweet me on it. I want a copy of that. Really, really interesting. The Literature Corner. Good morning, Eusebius. I'm going to rap for you. These lyrics are coming from my song that I wrote when I was 20 years old, seven years ago. Uh, the title of the song was Time is Moving. Time is moving, no more time for grooving. Brokenness said is best, but we can't stop craving for the things we can't afford. Oh Lord, I pray tomorrow will be better than today and believe all them demons will be removed out of my way as I tackle the world and use every second fruitfully. A wise woman said to me, Prince, carefully and while caring like that, 
be careful i respect her for those words man stay beautiful the first step to knowing is admitting you don't know and always know that time waits for no man only time to be real no time for faking man each birthday should be a flipping reminder get the knowledge go to school and find them in adonza i know a lot of people listen time they know about me i know dala i know bongs i know double sd i know label i know lucas i know even me deep i'm 20 years old and maybe before 25 i'm a recovery steam shady <laughs> thanks you see you guys have a great day yo keep your day job baba. the literature corner margaret's hello hi am i on air you are indeed Oh dear. <laughs> okay. Um, this is this is something I would like to read from Richard Wagamasi. He's a la- he, late Richard Wagamasi. Yes. He um, is a First Nations wife of First Nations writer, and this is his last book. And it gives you food for thought. My people say that this time was foretold. Our ancient prophecies said that there would come a time when words would fly. Like lightning bolts across the sky. This referred to the age of satellites and the internet. These same prophecies predicted that the human family would move further apart and this separation, this breaking energy, would cause great stress upon the earth. This time would be marked by flood, drought, titanic storms, famine, earthquakes, the departure of the animals, strange diseases and turmoil among all peoples. One look at the news on any given day will reveal these predictions are coming true. But my people say that there will also come a time when a new flame is lit. The new fire will burn and the human family will gather about it for shelter, warmth, community and belonging. This new flame will be ignited by the embers of those old tribal fires we all have in common. There will be a returning to teachings that draw us together, together instead of pushing us apart. As these teachings are renewed, the human family will gather together and the energy of that joining will heal the planet, if only we will allow it. Hmm. Thank you for that, Margaret. Absolutely, if only we allow it. And that's the key thing. And that is subject to our control. Thanks for sharing that one. I think we've got another voice note. It's the year 2020, but there is still load shedding. The one minute it's bright, then the next there's no light. I can't tell the difference between day and night. Everyone is in a hurry hurry, because you might get cold curry curry. And after the curry, you face another worry over and over again. Esco makes promises, promises that things would get better. Yet at the end of the month, still just a billing letter. We all experienced this. How did the olden day people cope? Trusting Eskom brings no hope. A candle here, a candle there. What a nightmare. Where do we go from here? Must the light just disappear? Please, please, someone lend me an ear. We need changes here. <laughs> Oh, my God. I don't know what to say. I'm both impressed by her creativity as a young teenager. And I'm saddened that her poetic skill has to be inspired by the absolute horror of Ashcom. It's half past 11. The Literature Corner.
Okay, 28 minutes before noon. We're just wrapping up the Literature Corner. Thank you so much for many of you who um, have been reading for us. We'll take one last one. Menzi, how's it? Yubi, how are you? Lekker. Morning. Uh, okay, so I'm going to be reading from um, Gigi Alcock's book called Third World Child. Um, okay, let me go. In the custom of the Zulu people, a man is named after an event or a character trait. So it was that my brother was named Konya, the bull bellower. His baby cries evoking the bellows of a bull. Later, his personality evoking the power of a bull. And I was named after an event. On the day of my birth, the GG trucks arrived to remove the people from the land. It was a time of anger, terror, and a time of loss and disposition. The time of GG. Apartheid meant that the land must be whitened, for Blanken, the Afrikaners called it. To make it white meant to bulldoze, beat and break down whole communities, loading them, protesting and weeping into the GG, government garage license trucks, and dumping them in the negro and pathetic positions in what the government called the homelands. The homelands, of course, were chosen for being arid, useless, scrubby places which no one wanted, but an official had drawn a line on a map and these places became KwaZulu, Transkai, Uputatuana, the so-called homelands of the Zulu, Tosa and Tswana people. I think I'll leave it there for now. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, I, I've started a thing here because there's so many voice notes you also have, but I can't play all of them, but maybe we'll squeeze in, uh, Abel, one last one. I am Pumesa. I'm going to read some stanzas from Maya Angelou's A Brave and Startling Truth. We, thus people, on a small and lonely planet, traveling through casual space, past aloof stars, across the way of indifferent suns, to a destination where all signs tell us it is possible and imperative that we learn a brave and startling truth. And when we come to it, to the day of peacemaking, when we release our fingers from fists of hostility and allow the pure earth to cool our palms, when we come to it, when the curtain falls on the minstrel show of hate and faces suited with scorn are scrubbed clean, when battlefields and Colosseum no longer rake our unique and particular sons and daughters up with a bruised and bloody grass to lie in identical plots in foreign soil. When we come to it, when we let the rifles fall from our shoulders and children dress their dolls in flags of truce, when landmines of death have been removed and the aged can walk into evenings of peace, when religious ritual is not perfumed by the incense of burning flesh and childhood dreams are not kicked awake by nightmares of abuse. When we come to it, we, thus people, on this minuscule and kithless globe who reach daily for the bomb, the blade and the dagger, yet who petition in the dark for tokens of peace, we, thus people, on this mote of matter, in whose mouths abide cankerous words which challenge our very existence. 
Yet out of those same mouths come songs of such exquisite sweetness that the heart falters in its labor and the body is quieted into all. When we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible, we are the miraculous, the true wonder of this world. That is when and only when we come to it. I love this poem. I love it too. I'm so beautifully read as well. 24 minutes before noon. That was today's edition of the Literature Corner.